We just want to get into this new series, seven weeks, uh, called Idol Smashers. Um, it's based on, or rooted in, uh, a passage in Exodus, Exodus 23:24. You shall not bow down to the God, their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars to pieces. So this is positioning us in terms of how do we look at idolatry. And of course, we're going to get into this tonight, dig down into it a little bit. We'll be looking at idolatry as we find it in our culture, but we're going to try to begin to introduce idolatry, or uh, not introduce, address idolatry as we may find it in our own lives. Uh, tonight, we will look at what idolatry is, and we will consider why we are vulnerable to the allure and influence of idols, and consider what it means to utterly overthrow and break in pieces the idols we may find in our lives. John Calvin described uh, our hearts as idol factories. I think his full quote is up there. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Well, tonight, <clears throat> I want to go down onto the factory floor. And I want to look at the factory and where do these idols come from? And how, do, how are idols generated in our hearts? And uh, I want to look at uh, the particular, kind of the, what I believe to be the root of all idolatry is the idol of self. Before we look at idolatry, however, I want to take a page from the Treasury uh, Department's uh, training manual for uh, security agents to identify counterfeit money. And I've been told that uh, when they train agents who are going to work in, in exposing or uh, uh, rooting out counterfeit money, the only money they look at is the real thing. They become so familiar with what legitimate printed currency looks like, they can immediately pick up what is false. So I want us to start tonight by affirming, before we get into idolatry, Let's affirm the truth of who we are as God's people. So would you please stand? And we got two passages up here. I kind of like to read it together if we could. And then I'm going to ask you to remain standing and read the passage that will just kind of frame our topic for tonight. Are we up here for we the, for, oh, nope. Uh, I may just read this to you. Okay. You'll notice I changed the, uh, the personal pronouns from you to we. Can you read it with me? For we are a people holy to the Lord our God. The Lord our God has chosen us to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Let's go right into 1 Peter. But we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now let me read 2 Corinthians, uh, the end of chapter 6 into verse, uh, first verses chapter 7. What agreement <clears throat> has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, 
As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will come to you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, Paul writes, Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the Lord. Lord God, I pray that you would meet us tonight, that you would use me as a vessel, as an instrument to communicate, to teach, and to open up. Holy Spirit, come and open up our eyes and help our hearts to be yielded to you to see and understand what you would have done in our lives, what you want to do in our lives, and how we can embrace and yield ourselves to you. God, meet us, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. This evening, we're going to consider the questions, what is idolatry? And what is the role of self in idolatry? Start beginning. We misconstrue, excuse me, idolatry thinking it to be the Buddha statuette in the Asian restaurant you may frequent right by the cash register. We may think of idolatry as characteristic of primitive, uneducated people. Uh, I think we misconstrue idolatry if we think in those terms. Historically, idols were images of deities gods believed to rule over particular geographic regions and who provided needed benefits, i.e. fertility, animal reproduction, human reproduction, plant reproduction, fruitfulness, rain to provide the provision, to make the provisions necessary for life to occur. These gods were believed to be the ones who controlled those things in those particular regions or areas. Uh, they also provided victory and uh, the ability to overcome enemies. Such deities were believed to have power in their sphere or region. One of the things, if you read the book, we've been in Sterling, Pastor Eddie's been teaching on uh, the prophet Jonah. And, when, or, and when, he was, when he was in the ship sinking, uh, they said, well, who's your God? All these sailors, they had their individual gods. They were crying out to their gods. And he said, I serve the Lord, God of all the earth. Well, that's one of the things that's distinctive about the God that we serve. He isn't a God of regions. He's not a God of spheres. He's the God of the whole thing, Amen. the whole show. And that was the thing that identified and made distinctive the Old Testament people. We do, but we need to think beyond idolatry as we find it in the Old Testament. The cultic practices of the idols, idol worship of that time, vividly portrayed in Elijah on the mountain. The, ba the prophets of Baal assembled, they're cutting themselves, they're making their offering, trying to call their God to bring fire down and to uh, consume the sacrifice. And all of the things they were going through give evidence to the fact that there was a religious practice associated with the idolatry that these people uh, were living under. 
Idolatry is spiritual. It isn't just the images. We, we think of, well, idolatry is the Buddha on the, on the counter. No, no, no. The, the images represented something. And what they represented had real power. But the power of the, of the living God was greater, as Elijah demonstrated, and that was, that was the point. Um, today, the idols of our time are very different, but they're nonetheless idols. And these are what we're going to be looking at over the weeks ahead. The idol of wealth, of fame, of appearance, of influence, of pleasure, of relationships. Now, these things oftentimes don't have a, an image that we bow down to, but that doesn't make them any less uh, capable of becoming idols in our life. Uh, these things are all prized, they're sought after, they're worshipped with offerings of money, time, energy, passion, and strength. Idolatry is most basically a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And right there, we ought to be stopped in our tracks. Violating a law, the law of God should bring a, a fear and a trepidation to our hearts to even think we could do that. And of course, when we realize we are doing that, it should give us added boost to be able to tear down, to renounce, to forsake, and to do away with the thing we realize we have, brought, we have come to worship. Uh, idolatry is diametrically opposed to the law that says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You cannot hold to the one and have the other. That's what Jesus was saying about money. You're going to either hate one and love the other, or you're going to love one and hate the other. But you can't have both. So we can't, we can't live in this tension. And this is a big part of what we're going to be talking about tonight, is how we try to do that very thing. In his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, uh, for my Pastor Corey, if he's here, we're going to get a lot of good quotes on the, on the screen tonight. Uh, Tim Keller writes in the first definition, he said, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to, that you, excuse, excuse me, anything you seek to, that will give you what only God can give you. Idolatry, the, an idol has a primacy in our life. It takes the center stage. And it's that which we orient or oftentimes orbit around. An idol, another quote by, uh, by uh, Pastor Keller, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value then I'll feel significance and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. The heart cry for us, and this is part of what we want to, why we have to address idolatry, first of all, with regard to how we may find it in ourselves, is there is deep down within us a cry for a sense of wholeness. We want to be whole people. I'll leave it there. We create idols in order to try to produce that. 
If anything becomes another quote, more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life and identity, then it's an idol. And his final one, an idol is something that we look to for the things that only God can give. A false hope. Idolatry is practiced when we give the resources of our heart to what we believe will give us the assurance of supply, security, or satisfaction, a.k.a. significance, fulfillment, even rest. Idolatry is anything we're looking to that we think will provide what we desire or what we even need other than our God. So what is the role? Now, I'm sure that in the weeks to come, there we will revisit the definition of idolatry because I'm only giving uh, you know, a scan over of it. And uh, today, as I was preparing my message, Pastor AJ was getting stuff out of another book on a whole other subject, uh, but quotes about idolatry, and it was all good, and I didn't include any of that. So we may be hearing further definitions of idolatry as we go along, and that'll be fine. We need to be aware of it. Again, we need to be able to recognize the counterfeit. We need to have such a clarity about the truth of who God is that we can recognize the counterfeit when it, when it comes before us. Well, so what is the role of self in idolatry? To consider idolatry in our own lives requires that we understand the working of our own soul. If our hearts are idol factories then let's walk the factory floor. Let's consider the machinery working there and see how idols are produced. We need to begin with a clear understanding of our capacity and commitment to place self above all else. In our autonomy, Commitment to self, uh, excuse me, in our autonomy, commitment to self, self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-expression, and your mind probably is already clicking on another, other self-centered aspects that we not only, that we not only, not only drive us, but that are affirmed and regarded to be uh, the very nature of who we are. Self in our culture and society is highly esteemed. It becomes the lowest common denominator to defining almost everything. What is, what is it that's in you that you hold to be true or believe about this, about that, about anything else? And we affirm that. And we've actually come to a culture, into a place in our culture where if you don't affirm me in my affirming my selfness, even though my selfness may be wrong, you're wrong because you're supposed to affirm me for who I am. That's how, I'm just saying, that's how committed we are now in our time and day to self. Self will is the starting point for all that troubles and destroys the heart. Not circumstances. Because even circumstances, you have to make a choice about how you're going to respond to them. 
Dallas Willard, in his classic work, Renovation of the Heart, describes the soul as an, as an amalgam, as a, as a blending, an interrelationship of our thoughts, our choices, our feelings, and how these are intended to work together to guide and motivate and find expression through what we do physically with our bodies. And correspondingly, then, how we interact with the world around us and our relationships. There is, intent, there was, is intended by God to be there, for there to be a symbiosis, a blending and a harmonious working together of seamless interrelationship, harmonious, peaceful cooperation between all these elements of our created nation, nature. What are the machinery in our soul? Our mind, our emotions, our will, our body. And through that, even the way we affect what goes on around us. God intended for all those things to work together. He intended for there to be a, 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 an, an interrelationship, a healthy interrelationship a dynamic flowing of life that went on to where the mind saw things that needed to be done or decisions that were joined then by the will to make decisions. Those things actually sparked certain emotions that gave, were expressed through the body, through physical expression, leading out with an energy to affect the world around us. This is the way God had intended things to work. The machinery of our mind, will, emotions, body, and relationships, all quickened by the spark of God's life, our spirit, were designed to work together, integrated and coordinated in the soul to express God's life and purpose. And correspondingly, to worship him. Out of a wholeness an integrity, an internal soundness within us. But it's all broken. Sin has corrupted all the avenues of personal expression for doing life, leaving us broken, alienated, and in bondage. Our minds and understanding are darkened. Our emotions are conflicted because what they're being driven by oftentimes is something other than what God intended them to be driven by. Our patterns of thought don't guide our choices. Our feelings now define what we choose, instead of the other way around. And even what we think. Together, these discordant elements, discordant elements have over years of living trained our bodies to desire, require, even demand certain things in order to feel normal, happy, content, satisfied. From infancy, deep grooves of habit have formed that, uh, excuse me, have formed within us that we live from. And we default, we default to those habitual responses at almost every point. 
Sin at our core has trained us to understand our self-will, our right to see, regard, and run things as we see fit, independent from God and often in opposition to him. Sin has taught us that our self-will is to be the final word on all things important to us. It is this flesh, now understand, what my discordant mind, my conflicting emotions, my diffracted choices, all now have allowed things to be formed and desires to be, and I, I end up landing at the point of, well, what am I hungry for? My appetites. And, and this is the kind of dysfunctional operation that our souls are, are, are are, are contained within us. I'm going somewhere with this, and, and it will get a little happier here in a moment. <laughs> it is this flesh. That's why it's called that in the Bible. It is this flesh, all that is practiced and worked out through our bodies, that Paul speaks of often. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, neither can it do so. Can you begin to understand, number one, why the sin nature and what a lot of us are controlled by is regarded as our flesh? Because this is where all of this confusion and dysfunction and conflict and all of that, this is where it ends up finding its expression. What we do physically. What we do to appease, to make us feel better. Our bodies, our physical nature, are fully trained by the habitual responses and choices we've practiced over and over that directs and implements the decisions of the heart, the mind, the will, and the feelings. It's all been reversed. Instead of our mind leading the way with our choices, now so much of what we do arises out of how we feel, what our appetites are telling us to do. Our bodies, now trained in this way, Animate and energize the choices we've determined to make, which in turn control our personal sphere of rule, our own kingdom. In other words, self-will, lodged in this way, expressed in this way, makes a determination about how I want this to be here, how I want it to be there, what I'll do with this, what I won't do with that. And we're functioning as basically the king of our little kingdom. It's really interesting because what Jesus is saying is, bring your kingdom into my kingdom. In other words, in other words that, that's how this fits, is we take the little bit we have and we're intended to bring it into him and, and bring, it as, bring it as it is. And he'll begin, as we'll see in a moment, he begins to make the necessary changes. And he begins to do something with the machinery so that what the factory produces is something different. In this sense, self-will, working as it does over against God's will, is in fact the will of God, small g. What the Lord formed and intended to be in keeping with himself has in our hands become an instrument of destruction, despair, and hopelessness. Living on the basis of this reality produces a life that is in discord, that is conflicted, that's not keeping with our highest aspirations, and as such is far short of what even we desire or expect. We're left depressed, often confused, angry, 
hopeless. And this brings us to the craftsman in Isaiah 44. A whole chapter is about how a, a, a metal worker and a carpenter will take the raw product that they have and they would form an idol with it. And he, he spends the entire chapter talking about how a carpenter, a woodworker, will take a tree. He'll raise the tree up. It'll be something then that he'll cut it down. He'll bring it into his shop. And he'll, 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 begin, to, he'll begin to maybe make a piece of furniture out of it. Or he goes on to this. He begins to make a god out of it. He marks something out with a pencil and he begins to form an image. And here's what Isaiah says toward the end of this chapter. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, hmm, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person who thinks this way feeds on ashes. Boy, if that isn't a description of emptiness. Feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself, and listen to this, or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? In other words, I'm so committed to the process out of my self-will of creating something that I think will make me comfortable or serve me I can't even see what it is. I'm self-deceived. This is what idolatry does. The dysfunctional, corrupted soul becomes blind and deceived. We take that which God has provided, we use it practically for our needs, and then take some aspect of it and make it a God and bow down to it and worship. Wealth, physical intimacy, sex, enjoyment, pleasure of various kinds, recognition and regard, even food and comfort. We can turn these from the blessing and provision they were intended by God to produce and make them something we bow down to. We take what is good and we make it more than God ever intended it to be. We make it the source of supply, security, and satisfaction we desire and replace the true source. We think such an idol will serve to bring the unity and wholeness and restoration of a symbiotic cooperation and peace within our souls because that is what we desire and that's what we long for. And we turn to an idol to bring that about. As, as God small g, we make a God, small g, in the attempt to produce for ourselves what we cannot produce, what only the living God can do. And here's, here's just a point, and then I'm going to go on and make a little application of this. Idolatry begins with the God we make of ourselves. Idolatry begins by the way in which we regard our self-will, the right to be and do what we believe is right to be done, that very posture is the, is the seedbed of idolatry. 
Even the idols we choose, we choose to please and establish ourselves in the, in the pantheon of gods that, we may co- that may come to rule our lives, the God of self presides. To look at idols and idolatry in a meaningful way is going to require us to look at our own hearts. Now, I'm saying this about the next few weeks. To look at idolatry in an honest, open way, we're going to have to be looking inwardly at ourselves. Again, idolatry isn't going down to your local Baal temple and indulging in whatever nonsense or evil went on in that place. It's not an idolatry that's out here that's remote that, that, we, that we deal with. The, the issues of idolatry have in those situations and in our situations their root in our hearts. And if we're going to deal with idolatry honestly, openly, truthfully, if we're going to see it for the counterfeit that it is, then we're going to have to look honestly and clearly as, at what is true. <clears throat> this dysfunction, the discord, the self-alienation, all that I've been talking about that is in us generates idols. And this is what Christ has come to redeem us from. Salvation is not going to heaven when you die, so much as it is the process of deep change and transformation on the way there. My wife said I needed to say it that way. (laughs) It's not so much getting there. In fact... If you're in the process of being changed and transformed to be heaven-like in, you, in how you live, you may not even know when you've crossed over because nothing will be different. You're living that life now. You're looking to draw from that life now. And that's, what, that's why we have to look at our own souls, our own hearts. It's this process of transformation that we enter into and walk out now as we begin to walk closely with Christ. To challenge and break free from self-will, to confront the reality of self-assigned deity, of being God, small g, has to be a work of redeeming grace. Such a work begins, first of all, by wanting it, by seeing the need for it. Earnestly seeking God and believing he will meet us, change us, convict us, work the nature of Christ into us, that he will renovate the machinery of our souls and restore their proper inner working. We are to be renewed in our minds. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Can you see why that's being held out now? Because that is the precursor to our minds being transformed. Because so much resides here. Not bad. None of it's bad. Please don't hear me saying anything bad about the body. It just, it's, just the, it's just the, res, it's the reservoir that now fuels so much of what we do and informs and drives and demands. And it should be the other way around. And when you're walking with Christ in a transforming relationship, he will actually use a four-letter word you never want to hear, but he will say it, fast. (laughs) Why? 
because it's part of how the body gets back into proper alignment with everything else. Your mind begins to see that there's value in fasting and it informs your chooser. You're talking to somebody the other day. She, I love the word. She said, you said God's changing my picker. <laughs> what I pick. God is, wants to change that which motivates us. But he, he has to reinvert some things. You see how this works? That God wants to restore the machinery of our lives. To be a holy people, a people set apart to God, a people for Christ's own possession as we've declared, we must be ready to utterly overthrow the idols we find in our hearts. To tear down their pillars. The pillars are the structures in our own hearts that create and empower and make a place for the idols we find there. Will require us to be truthful with God and honest with ourselves. To cast down anything in our lives requires God to identify it and empower us by the Spirit to do so. Self-will won't do it. Self-will is part of the problem, So we'll see here in a moment. It will, it, to utterly forsake our commitment to self-will, to throw down the God of self, to overcome the deep-seated habits, thinking, commitments we've made and live by, will take God working in us to do it. We cannot see this dimension of depth of what I'm talking about here without God touching something in us deeply. Let me give you a little personal, I, I told you last time I spoke that I was on a journey. Well, what, what got that journey underway? It was about the time we were going through our five-day fast at the beginning of this year. But even before then, and, you, and my guess is you may have had some of the, this sense. I had a sense that, that there was more God wanted from me. There was more God could, could have. And I felt like in that process of holding this before the Lord, here's what God put on my heart. Here's what he said to me. He said, Duke, <clears throat> you are a shallow man living a shallow life satisfying yourself with shallow pleasures and now in the latter years you're on a shallow decline God's word to me at 73 years of age after nearly 50 years in ministry terrible sin wrong behavior going on in my life no God was lovingly showing me disciplining me through correction and reproof that I was living short of what he intended for my life. In the, refer the refrain I kept hearing in the background, had been hearing for years, Revelations 3, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. For me, repentance had to do with coming to grips with the fact that I was living in a shallow fashion because I was the one who was running a lot of the show of what I did. Was what I was doing wrong, evil, sinful, breaking the law? Absolutely not. 
That's part of what made it so acceptable. I was still coming from self-will. There was something in me that needed to be seen. It needed to be clearly recognized. And then it needed to be forsaken. And something else began to grow up in its place. We are never too old, never too deeply rooted in our self-directed life, never too short of God's full purpose for us that he cannot lovingly wake us up. We cannot and will not utterly cast down idols if we do not see or refuse to see the role and place of self at work in us. The greatest idolatry probably existing in all of our lives in this room right now is the idol we make of our own right to do what we want to do. Repentance begins with seeing and being convicted of what we see and then asking the Lord, God, please, lead me into what you would have me to be and do. And he's already invited us. Take my yoke. Take my yoke. Learn of me. As we've been looking at this, looking at idolatry, as we will in the weeks ahead, makes us aware of what is broken in our souls. It's what I've been dwelling on tonight. I hope I haven't depressed you, but I've kind of wanted to part the bushes and look down into, here's how it works. Now, is everybody all as messed up as I've described? Probably hardly any of you are that, that, that out of sorts with yourself. But I know one thing, none of us fulfill the highest aspirations we have for ourselves. There's something dragging anchor almost all the time. It's generally found in our appetites. It's generally found in our rationalizations. It's generally found in our accusations. It's generally found in all the things we practice to just basically make life comfortable, easy. And it's rooted in how we want it to be. And that is where idolatry has to be rooted out for starters. That's what God was getting at when he said those things to me. Confronting the reality of idols as we find them in our hearts is the starting place for bringing holiness to completion. 2 Corinthians. Passage I read tonight. Bring holiness to completion. See, God wants a people. What we declared at the beginning. We're God's people. We belong to him. He's the one who owns us. He's the one who's going to do with us what he wants to do. And you know what? In our heart, in our spirit, because we're born again, we want that. And yet he comes along and says, how about if you turn off the TV and just pray for a little bit? How about if you fast lunch tomorrow? I mean, we say, well, God never said that's legalistic. That's, that being, that's a law. I'm just looking at it and say, time out, time out. You are looking squarely at what self-will looks like. And it's and the things that God will do, sometimes they're just, they seem dumb. When I was at seminary, one of my favorite stories, I would come home from class. We were in dorm parents, and I come home from class, and they had a cookie. Before Oreo, there were Hydrox cookies, much better than Oreos. Oreos copied Hydrox and then did away with, 
But Hydrox cookies were delicious. I came home, I had a package, of, got milk out of the refrigerator, I poured the glass of milk, and I had this clear sense, don't do that. Now, the issue wasn't Hydrox cookies are bad, cookies and milk are fattening. That wasn't the issue. It was God wanting to cross my will. For no other person, and I didn't, I, I obeyed. That time I obeyed. That time. You see it? But you see how it works? Well, that time I was fine. You know, I mean, I look at it and I'm just saying, no, no, no. God's after something in us. And if we are going to be a people of set apart to him. I didn't put it in these notes, but I, I, I wrote something in a previous iteration of this. That there is, I believe, a direct correlation, maybe even a cause and effect connection between the rise of the God's power in a time of renewal and awakening, causing a rising, a rising tide of holiness in his people, linked to a rising tide of ingathering in the world. Now, I'm not an evangelist. I can't, I can't, it just seems right that if God has a people who really are have a heart for him, there's going to be something he's going to be able to do and will do in the world. Amen. Maybe even apart from the people. He's just delighted with people who love him and will follow him. All of this is to the end of our becoming fully the people we declared ourselves to be. We are a people holy to the Lord. Let's conclude by declaring with Joshua. And I think the passage is up here as well. We don't have to read this out loud. Just this is great. This is an affirmation, and then I want us to pray. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served. Choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, I said earlier that the kind of deep work that God, I believe, wants to do we have to want him to do it. So I just want to conclude tonight by just saying, could you just take a moment, bow your head, and whatever you sense the Lord may be drawing you to open up, to repent of, to give over to him, I don't know. Maybe you'll even hear a word that basically is his assessment of where you are right now. And it's not a, it's, he's not judging you but you see there's a gap between where you are and what you know, where you know he wants you to go and be. So Lord, we just look at the gap and the gaps that we see in our own souls. Lord, our, our thinking isn't as clear, it isn't as God-oriented as it needs to be. Paul said, set your minds on things above. Lord, we want to have minds that begin to be trained to think in your terms, to seek you. That Lord God, the choices we make, Lord, would you come and renew within us a heart that chooses you first and foremost, that desires you. God, we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily motivated that way now, but we need to become motivated that way. God, would you help us? Would you change our emotions? Let our emotions come to be the joyful, the joyful responder to what our thoughts and choices make selection of, that our feelings would follow along. 
and would respond and resonate with what it is we know to be true and right. And that God, our bodies, would come to be the, the instruments for implementing your will through our lives. Not implementing our will, not guiding and directing by our appetites the things we would like, but increasingly, Lord God, coming to be conformed to you. Lord Jesus, only you can do these things. You are the God of our redemption, and you're the God who's going to help us throw down idols and utterly do away, beginning with this business of self-will. Would you help us to become a yielded, submitted, obedient people that glorifies you in what we do?